Welcome to Fearless with Mark and Amber, the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking, a podcast to help inspire others to stand in their purpose by sharing our journey as missionary filmmakers in the entertainment industry. Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. (laughs) If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We are a husband and wife filmmaking team on a mission to share our passion and journey with others. We most recently finished a documentary film titled Inwood Drive that shares the true story of a battle that ensued in one Indiana community, making it known as the second largest abortion desert in the United States. On Friday, September 13th, 2019, the nation awoke to the horrifying discovery of over 2,000 medically preserved fetal remains found in the garage of one of the nation's most prolific abortionists, Ulrich George Klopfer. Weeks later, another 165 baby remains were discovered in the trunk of one of his dilapidated cars. A shocked nation cried out for answers, and we found ourselves in the middle of a ripped-from-the-headlines story. Our documentary feature includes the only interview ever conducted with abortionist Klopfer, and today we're going to pick back up with Chapter 3 of the companion book, Inwood Drive, The Rest of the Story. The rest of the story. That was very Paul Harvey of me. <laughs> but it's true. There's so much more to the story and the triumph. Very Paul Harvey. It's I, Incidentally, I have to interrupt. Uh-huh. I have a... You remember last week we were talking about Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. And I was telling everybody about my movie poster collection. Oh, yes. I don't mean to throw us off track right off the bat, but <laughs> I I have I have a, an entertaining Schindler's List story. You want to hear it? Oh, do tell, dear. Do tell. <laughs> I'm not sure that we introduced ourselves. I'm Amber. I'm Mark. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> We're the crazy married couple. <laughs> I'm the one who interrupts her. <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah. So <laughs> so back in my early 20s, before I got into, you know, really making movies, I worked, as you know, as an assistant manager at a movie theater. Mm-hmm. And when I first started working at this theater... Um, it was a dollar house. It was, it was a, uh, you know, a second run movie theater, but then we got bought by Regal cinemas and they changed us to first run. And we were the only theater in town that had Schindler's list hmm. when it came out. Mm-hmm. People were not happy about that because <laughs> we were, it was, it was a two screen theater. It was an older theater, but we had a 600 seat and an 800 seat theater. Mm-hmm. And so we could handle a lot of people. It was a big deal for our theater. But if you're not familiar with, have you ever been inside a film projection booth? Once. Once. <laughs> so for those of you who aren't familiar, because a lot of people aren't. Right. <laughs> so do tell. Before everything was digital and you would have to actually have 35 millimeter film prints. And the way the projectors work is that you have to, you have to, all the film comes in, the, the films come in on thousand foot rolls mm-hmm. and you'd get these cans mm-hmm. that would have three or four reels in them. I think, I think four. And so the projectionist would have to splice them all together thousand feet at a time. And this would take a while, mm-hmm. splice it all together and then make sure that, and then they would have to do a test run. And usually that would be like the night before it would open. Then those of us who worked at the theater, we could, we could watch the movie early mm-hmm. and you could see it. So you'd have to check the print. And the way that the, that the projection booth worked is it had what's called a platter system. And so it would be, there would be the projector and then sitting next to it would be what looked like, like a giant cake platter, but there would be like four platters, like metal platters 
that were all stacked on top of each other with about, I don't know, a foot between them. And then the, the film would, would be laying on this. It would be, it would be rolled up on, on one of these platters on its side. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a 90 minute film is like 8,300 feet of 35 millimeter film. So, and it would roll onto this platter and then it would unspool from the middle. And there was a, 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 a mechanical system called the brain Mm-hmm. That would regulate how fast it would it would unspool, and then it would go through this, this spool and this spool and this spool, and go and turn around and come down through the projector. I'm going to need a diagram. And then it would come off the projector <laughs> and get respooled and wrapped up down on one of the other platters. Uh-huh. And then once it was all done, and and the reason they had like four platters is then you could run two, sometimes three prints in the same theater, right? Mm-hmm. So there was always somewhere for it to come off of and somewhere for it to go onto. Well. Getting to the point of my story, when we had Schindler's List, Schindler's List was almost three hours long. Uh-huh. A three-hour long 35-millimeter print is really, really big. Mm-hmm. And it would take up almost the whole platter. And these platters were like three, imagine like three, almost four foot in diameter. Mm. And so as the as it would go, then the platter would have to turn around like a record player, right? And it would, un, as the film was unspooling. And one of the things that that happened was the the film, the physical film, would build up static. Mm-hmm. And you would have this spray can, this static spray that you would spray on it. And you'd have these little suction cup things that you'd put around the outside of the print to keep it centered. Mm-hmm. But what would happen is the stat it wouldn't take much static to build up and it would, you know, it would be pulling and then it would it would resist. And and the the, the brain would keep pulling on it and then it would like pull it a little oblong. And so as it wonky. went, huh? <laughs> so, so now it's wonky. So now it's wonky. <laughs> and so as it goes then, and it's now it's spinning and it, it and it, it does this a few times and it would get oblong and then it would start going, getting like, whoop, whoop, right. <laughs> yeah. So one time I was downstairs at the concession booth and you hear this, this whoom, whoom, whoom coming. And at first you're not sure if it's coming from the theater like, mm-hmm. or where it's coming from. And then by the time you realize what it is, it's too late. And we would sprint upstairs and go up to the projection booth. And I remember running into the projection booth just in time to see the last hour of Schindler's List go flying off the platter <laughs> all over the projection booth. Oh no. And then every and then of course the film breaks and so the So did you have to said, refund everybody's money? You have to I give mean... everybody a ticket. <laughs> so then I had to go downstairs and stand up in front of everybody, turn the lights on, say, I'm sorry, the film broke. Because there's no way you're putting this you're not <laughs> no no, this way. is like you're you shut down for the rest of the night. <laughs> yeah. Because it is a mess. Yeah. So that's my biggest memory of Schindler's List. Oh, my word. That and the fact that the people would complain that it was in black and white. And I actually had some woman complain to me in the lobby that we didn't have the projector adjusted right. (laughs) 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 So it was shot in black and white. It's a black and white print. Oh, my goodness. That's my Schindler's List story. Okay. 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 But today... (laughs) Glad I could share that with you. I'm glad you. I'm glad you. Could Fun share facts this. behind the scenes of cinema with Mark. <laughs> All right. So today 
we're going to get into chapter three of the companion book, Inwood Drive. So let me just start off. I'm just going to read the first paragraph in chapter three, just some of the first paragraph. It says, on January 22nd, 1973, the United States Supreme Court legalized abortion in all 50 states. With that singular court case, the floodgates of hell itself were unleashed on America and a holocaust of the unborn began. So most of us, when we think of the Holocaust, we think of Nazi Germany and the mass murder of the Jews during 1941 to 45, you know, with more than 6 million European Jews that were murdered at the concentration camps. And a Holocaust, by definition, is the the destruction or slaughter on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. And since that fatal 1973 court case, Roe v. Wade, we are well over 61 million abortions right now by the year 2020. And those are just the ones that are accounted for. Mm -hmm. So sort of let's dive in here. Chapter three for you. Tell us more about about this American Holocaust. Yeah. So I think the 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 point that I was really getting at in with the third chapter is talking about um, just the overall picture of really what is the Holocaust in America. Um, and worldwide, but especially in America, because then we start in the next few chapters to narrow it in on specifically Fort Wayne and right. specifically George Klopfer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the most uh, prominent point that for me that, that I wanted to make in this chapter was uh, being a member of the first generation to survive the American Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So I was born in October of 1973. Mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade was January of 1973. And so if you're born in 1973 or later, then you're with me. You're, you are part of the generation that has survived the American Holocaust. And one of the things that I mentioned in here is, uh, it's hard to talk to a man that you know would have ripped you in half with surgical instruments to make his next Mercedes payments and not lash out at him in rage. Oh, yeah. I appreciated what you said later that I truly believe the only reason the Lord allowed Amber and I to do this film and have that conversation was because we were both ready in our hearts and minds to accept George for the lost sinner that he was. Love the man, hate the sin. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's all that really ran through my mind as we went in to talk to him. I just wanted to go and share truth and try and understand, have compassion and empathy for whatever has happened in his life mm-hmm. that has, has made him the man that, that he was. Which we found out a lot of yeah. the ugliness that mm-hmm. made him the monster that he became mm-hmm. had a lot to do with his upbringing. And it wasn't just surviving the Dresden bombings. It was, it had to do with a, he had an abusive home, he had an abusive family life mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, his, his siblings and his, both of his parents uh, physically, mentally abusive yeah. to him. It was a very sad story mm-hmm. and it didn't take long after he got out of mom and dad's house and got to college before he became uh, very uh, overcome with the world Yeah, and made that decision to go down that path that led to easy money mm-hmm. and um, a very dark, very very dark career path that really destroyed him. We, we talk in chapter three, two, then we go into talking about specifically Fort Wayne and 
tracing it back to when the first clinic came to downtown Fort Wayne. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just Fort Wayne is kind of an archetype. Uh, this, this has happened all over the country, but in, in this, uh, city in particular, we could trace this down because this is where George Klopfer really came from. So he didn't start doing abortions in Fort Wayne until the early to mid eighties, mm -hmm. I think is what we, uh, there was one spot in one of his testimonies later where he said, I think he put it at 84 or 86 is what he said. Yeah. And there's usually a range with George. Yeah. And it depends which time you ask him. Yeah. And, um, so he wasn't doing abortions in Fort Wayne until the mid eighties, but the clinic opened in 1978, uh, mm -hmm. uh, June of 78. So let me read an excerpt here. So Fort Wayne in the late 1970s was already burdened with a huge pornography problem with three adult bookstores and two pornographic movie theaters. That's a lot of porn outlets for a city that only had a population in 1980 of around 170,000. Mm -hmm. uh, organized crime from Detroit ran all of the porn establishments except for one theater called the Rialto. But together they had poisoned the city's moral fiber and gone completely unchecked for many years. Uh, the Rialto was later shown to have not only been showing porn, but also producing it upstairs as well as running a prostitution ring. An abortion clinic was just the icing on the cake for a community like Fort Wayne. If you're going to have the porn, then you're going to have the sex and you're going to have the unwanted pregnancies. Fort Wayne, Indiana, the city of churches was a prime market for an abortion practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I, di I just don't see any other way to, to draw the, the logical line there. It started with, you know, it started with the corruption of pornography mm -hmm. that leads to the behavior that, that gener you know, that, that has the result of the pregnancies and Fort Wayne, uh, was dealing with the open pornography problem way back in the early sixties. So this had been building for a while and, um, it's, 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 quite, it's a natural consequence. It's a natural the, consequence, you know, of, of the moral decay. Right. So for someone who didn't grow up in the sixties, right. I, my only reference point is, is history and what I have been told. Um, but you know, when, when, when I started really kind of remembering and paying attention to things like abortion mm -hmm. was when I was in high school, late high school. So it was like in the nineties, early nineties and not realizing then that the problem that I was seeing that I didn't really understand was the result of decisions that had been made 30, 40 years before, mm -hmm. you know, all of this had started building and seeding the ground for what would then be the massive abortion problem that we had. Also talking about Kathy Humbarger, this is where we first start talking, mm -hmm. introducing her. And she shared a story of how, how she first got involved mm -hmm. in the pro-life fight, um, that she had a friend who, uh, who shared with her, uh, that she had had an abortion mm -hmm. and, 
that she was dealing with a lot of hurt and shame over that and asked Kathy if she would still be her friend. Mm -hmm. And, and that was where Kathy first really made the connection of just what an issue this was. And yeah. And and I even, I highlighted that excerpt too, because I thought it was, it was just so profound because I think a lot of people don't stop to think about it. I mean, I I think, I think a lot do, but I think no one really wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not this conversation that's easy to have, but what I did, what I did um, highlight was uh, through Kathy's interview. And this is an excerpt from the book. What I found out through her is that women believe the lie that was sold to them by the abortion business. That is, for a price, the abortionist can erase the life of a baby. It's only after the fact that my friend and millions like her have realized that an abortion only makes them the mother of a dead baby. So the Lord grabbed my heart through a broken, a heartbroken woman who had made an abortion decision. And from that day on, I was adamant about making certain that to the best of my ability, women would know the facts and I would encourage them to make a different decision than my friend. But I think it's 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 something that needs to be talked about and, and it just love and compassion. And, you know, and Dr. Cly through here, I, it was it was incredible because he's an OBGYN. So what Jeff said was the women I know who have had abortions, it's always a sad spot in their life. And what I found is I don't know any of them who didn't want the baby. They always want the baby, but there's something going on that makes them think they can't keep the baby that they have to to do this abortion because of this other reason, because of this fear of something. I'm always amazed at the reasons, and some of them to you and me might be trivial, but to them it's massive. And so they always say, I know it's a baby. And I think that's really hard when you when you realize, and then you know, he, he later goes on and talks about the trauma of actually going through the abortion mm-hmm. and the mental pain and anguish is is a lot far worse than actually having the child and giving it up for adoption. Mm-hmm. And one of the things too that we talk about in chapter three is that the the notion of, or the the idea of picketing and oh, yeah. how that yeah. messaging relates to what you're talking about there that Jeff brought up mm-hmm. about what really needs to be addressed. And mm-hmm. we we've seen that as we've studied the pro life the fragmentation right. of the pro-life movement yeah. over the past couple of years. And I, I don't mean it as a specific criticism, but it's an observation. The yeah. The pro-life community is very fragmented. It, and, but I, I can see that it's getting better. It is getting better. Um, but there's a, you know, the, what Jeff talks about specifically in that is that what, what needs to be addressed is, um, the needs of these women, the needs of the women, mm-hmm. why are they there? Yeah. And we talked about that in light of, um, of picketing. And so we saw a lot of picketing in the archival footage mm-hmm. from the original clinic on Webster street. And we had a lot of discussion about how effective is that? Mm-hmm. And we've certainly seen examples where it has been effective, but, um, more specifically, I talk about how I, I had even decided in my mind that I did not want to be one of the people standing out there holding, a, a giant, you know, full color yeah. picture of a dismembered baby. Mm-hmm. I just didn't see, and I, I still don't see that that is, how does that help 
the crisis that the they crisis seem to be in. that yeah. that woman is in. Yeah. See if you can if you can help her with the problem that she has. She has a problem, whatever it is that she sees as insurmountable, and she sees this as her only way out. Yeah. That sign doesn't help that. It doesn't address the need. It doesn't help her need at right. all. It just it just adds to her guilt, mm-hmm. which she already has. I right. think that's one of the things that people don't understand. And I had, I didn't understand that. I didn't make that connection, oddly enough, until listening to somebody like Jeff, yeah. who is an OB. He's never, he's never done abortions, but mm-hmm. he has dealt with patients who right. have. Right. And him pointing out, listen, until you address the, the problem, the reason that they're there, yeah. you're not going to stop it. Yeah. You can, you can make it illegal. Um, it's still going to happen. It happened before Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. It'll happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned. It, the abortions will still happen. You, you, you're not addressing the real problem there. The crisis. The crisis. Whatever that, it may be. That has brought them to that point mm-hmm. of believing that the only way out is for them to get rid of their baby. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's sad. I it mean, is sad. It's, it's really heartbreaking. Um and Serena talked about that too in mm-hmm. her interview with Serena Dykeson, Um, that it's one of those, one of those things that I think has has gone largely unaddressed by the church, mm-hmm. um, because listen, the church is just made up of people, mm-hmm. and people in general, I think, just like just like me, they they don't think about these things because they're not dealing with crises like mm-hmm. that. Well, and a lot of people are distracted. I mean, we don't have time to care about somebody else's needs because we're all so busy and hung up with right. something else. Right. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it that way, but that's... No, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Who takes the time to listen anymore? Yeah. So how can how can people apply that, I think, uh, is the question that we ask. And I would put it to you as a listener. Is there someone that you that you know of or that you see that you think might be susceptible to that. Mm-hmm. How can you change your thinking from condemning their actions? Mm-hmm. Maybe they've had an abortion. Maybe they've gone through that. Well, you know what? They're hurting. Mm-hmm. They may lash out. They may be very defensive. But the truth is that, that as Jeff pointed out, they know that what they've done is take the life of a child. Mm-hmm. And they need healing. And they need Christ. And, uh, and Serena talked about that and Kathy talked about that and Jeff talked about that, that Mm -hmm. they need until those problems are addressed. And that's what, that's what Christ did. He met their needs where they were. Mm -hmm. He healed the sick and he fed the hungry. And that just seems to be one of those things that we have overlooked, overlooked. We've largely forgotten. Mm -hmm. So Thank you for joining us today. We'd love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help make it easier for others to find and listen. And we also wanted to take a moment and give a shout out to Diane. Thank you for your sweet card. We appreciate you listening. Friends, let me encourage you this week. Start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. The Lord has uniquely blessed each of us to be vessels for truth for kingdom's sake. So live with passion and love others well. God bless, and we will see you next week. See you next week.